Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Let's be real. Who among us has never had this dream? That one day you're walking along the beach or hiking in the foothills and you see something strange out of the corner of your eye. A scrap of metal sticking up out of the ground. A glint of something shiny exposed by recent rains. There's no one else around. You walk over, scoop out the earth around it, and up comes a jar, a bottle, a box, even something so large as a wooden chest. Your excitement growing every second. Just when you think you can't wait any longer, finally, you open the container, breaking the seal, lifting the lid, and there, glowing right in front of you is... Sorry, I got a little carried away there, but if I did, it's only because reading Craig Gaines's new book led me down more of those kind of daydreams than I'd like to admit. A trained geologist, an expert on the subject of lost treasure. Let me repeat that, just so we're on the same page. An expert on the subject of lost treasure. Craig has spent most of his life researching and writing about the stories from history that keep us up at night. Not from fear or terror, but from amazement. His newest book, Lost California Treasure, takes this interest to what is perhaps the most aptly nicknamed state in the Union, the Golden State. As we continue our series on new releases from the History Press, we are excited to have Craig take us on a tour of some of the most tantalizing sites in the West. So grab your pick and shovel and join us down here at the mine. You never know. Pay enough attention and you might just get lucky. Craig, we are so excited to have you here at Crime Capsule. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Now, this is going to kind of sound a little funny right off the jump, but I'm just going to go for it. You have had a very long career in, and I'm not making this up, lost treasure studies. (laughs) Tell us about lost treasure studies. And did your friends growing up just call you Indiana Jones? Uh, Not really, but again, you know, back in the year when I was in junior high school, I they I found a magazine called Lost Treasure that was being published and at the time metal detectors were becoming commercially ava- I mean available to people and they were cheap enough that everybody started buying them and, and being in Oklahoma I ended up buying a cheap metal detector and I was kind of hooked after you dig up a couple of coins and in schoolyards and other things so ever since then I've been collecting information on lost treasure and i've spent a lot of time you know out in the boonies looking at ghost towns and uh old forts and battlefields and and areas where people would lose money like parks etc so i i just got hooked on the uh experience and also there was a lot of western lore that came out in in my youth you know the the movies and everything so you know for a long time i've been collecting information and again i've had the 
pleasure of living in several different places and traveling a lot. So that really helps, you know, get a feel for these area. You know, it's kind of like fishing, isn't it, right? I mean, you you never know what you're going to catch, but you show up with your rod and you got, um, you know, a little bit of knowledge of, of where some of these fish might be lurking. And, you know, if you set your, uh, your instrument to the right, you know, sort of frequency or, or tensile strength, say, uh, you might just pull something up out of that water and or dirt. So, I mean, tell me, what is the most interesting thing that you personally have ever discovered? I, I think it's probably some Civil War bullets, you know, just on battlefields, you know, because, you know, more than 100 years ago, some guy was being shot at and shooting at people, and he dropped a bullet in the process. And when you find it, it's like, you know, you're the first one to touch it, you know, since the 1860s, 1863 or 1862. So, you know, to me, that's, you know, being in touch with history and people. We had a couple of collectors growing up in Mississippi. We had a couple of collectors in the area who had come across, you know, mini balls and that sort of thing. And they were very, very proud of, you know, what they had found in, in different battlefields and so forth. Do those actually ping on your metal detector, the mini balls? They do. It's lead, but I think it, lead can cause magnetic distortion. But, you know, it, normally it's just metal that you detect with a metal detector, so... Anything that distorts the magnetic field. Well, it is such a thrill to think about all the different elements that are still under the ground because your entire book is centered on this notion of how much gold there still is out in California after hundreds and hundreds of years of people prospecting, digging, mining, searching, exploring, mapping, and yet so much is still out there. So tell us, I mean, you've worked on a lot of Lost Treasure books, but how did the California volume come to be? I had, again, I lived out in California for, I think, 17 years. I worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And so I'd been up and down all the rivers in California in the Central Valley. So I, and again, I would go on weekends visiting a lot of these spots I talk about and, and, you know, collect information, take pictures. And, and a lot of it's to me is just the adventure of seeing, you know, something that used to be there that was a little grander than it is now, or ruins indicating, you know, people had been there a long time and then they're gone and everything else is gone. A lot of these, Little ghost towns and ghosts and mining camps in the uh, foothills, or you can see the footings and remnants of where the town used to be. You know, you you describe this kind of interesting tension in your book between the the deposits that were uh, sort of known to be you know, good veins, good loads that anyone could work and kind of get in there and come up with some some nuggets or some flakes or that sort of thing. But then you also describe the way in which these towns would spring up around deposits that would move, that the gold actually moves. And people don't people don't realize that, do they? I mean that's that's not quite as commonly understood. 
Well, most of the early mining was in gravel, in sand, from eroded rocks in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains. And in the mountains, you would have veins of gold and it would be eroded and it would go downstream into the valley. And so as you go farther from the source of the eroded gold, the size of the rocks or nuggets got smaller and smaller. And when they found gold uh, at Sutter's Mill, John Marshall did by accident, it was a really little tiny piece of gold. And, it, you know, it started the gold rush and it changed California overnight. It went from kind of a sleepy raising cattle you know, raising uh, crops type of state to hundreds of thousands of people came in trying their luck. And and back then, it was a new state. I mean, it wasn't a new, a new state. It was a new territory. And so they didn't really have a government set up to handle this influx of people. But the mining initially was in this gravel below the mountains in the Central Valley. And they quickly washed through that and then they moved upstream and ended up with hydraulic mining and drift mining or tunnels and to actually locate the source of the eroded gold, which is in veins. And again, the geology is pretty complicated. They have faults and, and movement of rocks and of course, of course, California has lots of earthquakes, and that's ind indicative of uh, the rocks moving over time. You have a compendium here. I mean, your book is almost like a, I thought of it kind of like an atlas almost, of every uh, lost deposit, every abandoned um, dig site, uh, every burned cabin, <laughs> which which once maybe held, you know, the guy who knew where the the, the mother load was, or you know, the map scrawled on the, the the cedar planks or what have you. You know, there's up and down the coast and up and down the Sierra Nevadas. I mean, you have hundreds of these sites that you have charted. It is an extraordinary read because it's just one after another, you realize the extent of how many folks were out there prospecting for so long. I mean, you have a rubric by which you judge these accounts. Well, usually I, I look at the time and I'm wondering, okay, is this guy fishing for somebody to give him a grub stake so he can go back and look for a mine? You know, And I think some of those... That's the case. In a few cases, finding gold on the shore of a mountain lake, a lot of people have been to the mountain lake and they didn't see gold. And I think, well, it's probably mica. You know, if, if you, mica's thin and it reflects light. And so it kind of looks like gold when it's in the water until you pick it up and, and it breaks apart. But, you know, part of it's just, thinking about the geology, and I've got background in geology, uh, so I'm always thinking like a geologist as I'm looking at lost mine stories. 
you know, it depends on the sources, whether they're credible or not. And, and again, with newspaper articles, they're not always right. Some of them are written to, uh, in small papers, more like a novel. Just, I, I've got a deadline, I need to put something in here, and they put some strange stuff in there occasionally. But you look for multiple sources, really, you know, about the same time, or uh, look at researchers that have written extensively about it, uh, Lost Mine, and then you're trying to figure out, okay, you know, there's six versions of this, which are the most likely? And that's difficult. It is. And especially when you're dealing with, you know, well over 150 years of distance between you and even the first account, you know, much less the account that changes in the telling. Let me ask you, I noticed a structure, kind of a common pattern in your accounts of these hundreds of different sites up and down California. The, the, the basic pattern seems to be this. Gold is found. Gold is then hidden. The found gold is then sort of concealed or, or um, you know, disguised in some way. And then something happens. There's a sort of variable of X that enters into the narrative at that point. We're going to talk about what those are. But after X, X happens and then the site is lost. Okay. And every now and then you'll have a site get recovered. Usually it's only partially, right? It's very rare that it's kind of the whole mother load, so to speak. Um, but did you, as you were researching these, I mean, how, how long was it before you began to sort of notice this pattern yourself? Because then you start looking for the deviations, don't you? The deviations right. are the interesting ones. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, again, you get into folklore and how people tell stories and it's like fish stories. Sometimes the fish keeps getting bigger every time they tell a story. You know, it's just human nature as you're uh, examining these various stories of lost gold and treasure and and there's a whole bunch of them and especially there were a number of magazines in, about the desert the California desert and traveling in the desert in the 50s and 60s and that's where some of this these stories came out because they had writers in the area and they were going out on weekends you know, looking for minerals it may not always be gold but they were keeping their eyes open for whatever minerals they could lay claim on because most of the lands are government lands government-owned lands and things were pretty flexible back then as far as filing mining claims because you didn't worry too much about the environmental research and filings you have to do now on government lands to do to exploit them it's interesting, you know, it's, it sounds like there is almost a genre then of kind of treasure seekers or treasure writers in the American mid-century in the sort of, you know, right after World War II, these folks who are going out and creating the type of story that then, you know, eager eager young magazine readers such as ourselves would, would kind of pick up on. So you have the, the incident, then you have the, uh, in say the 18... 40s or you know the 1860s um, then you have the kind of the the shrouding of the incident 
in obfuscation, right, in mystery to protect the, you know, the treasure itself. Then you have things kind of dying out over time. Then you have somebody resuscitating the narrative, and then it reaches you. I mean, how many layers, how many filters have we placed on it by this point? Right. And what happened in, in World War II is they shut down all the gold mines and they never reopened them because especially the mines in tunnels, the underground mines, because you have to pump water out or the water comes in and fills up the mine. You know, it just kind of killed the mining industry at that point. And then as gold prices changed, you know, now we have extremely high gold prices. But back in the 1850s, it was like $21 an ounce, which was a lot of money back then compared to $21 today. There was a period when people didn't do any gold mining per se. But after big rains, like I think this winter, there's been a lot of rain in California. So I'm sure the scuba divers and gold panners are up in the the Sierra hunting for gold that's been carried down in the last deluge. And it's it's kind of episodic like that where you have flowing streams. But where you have dry washing in the desert, it's a different type of small-scale mining, because there you don't have the water. If you hear from any of those panners or divers, uh, you know, find it anything, just let us know, because we'd be, <laughs> you know, we'd be curious to hear what what turns up. Now, let me ask you, I want to I dive in a little bit to this, this mysterious variable of X, right, that comes up in the patterns of the stories, the thing that happens that causes the site to be lost. And I have like a little laundry list of ones that I pulled out of your book, which I'd like to kind of run through item by item. We're going to talk about specific cases and specific digs here here in a minute, but I want to just kind of stay on the global the global pressures for a second, because I think it's really interesting how these variables affect uh, people all up and down the coast over and over again. And it, it's almost kind of comical, you know, how you, how you encounter them so frequently, you'd think somebody would prepare for them. But anyway, so the first one, the first one that can cause a site to be lost uh, is uh, very understandable to memory. Sometimes a, 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 a prospector will, <laughs> will find a site and dig something up, come back and tell his family about it, you know, go back and conceal it. And then he won't remember where it was. Right. <laughs> How often does that happen? I mean, I'm back then, I think it's pretty common, especially if there was a year or two between visits, because the Sierra had a lot of forests at one point, and a lot of those were cut down for mining purposes to build uh, sluices and, and things like that. And so if you had a tree that's a marker or a trail, you go back and everything's changed. Plus, in California, you can have these heavy rains that wash little trails away and change the landscape and, and things like that. So I don't think it's un that unusual. And even when I've gone back to some sites over time, it's like, is this where I was before? It looks a little different, you know. And, and a lot of these miners, again, they get sick they're out in the desert or they're in the, the mountains and they get disoriented. I mean, just think of when you're sick and if you're having to go someplace, it's not as easy to find. And if you're really sick and walking and your mules run off, 
with all your food, you're in trouble. So I, yeah, you know, I find those stories plausible for the most part, especially when they have a ore sample that's rich, and and then you say, yeah, they they ran across something, and now the question is, where was it? Right. They didn't come back with a couple of flakes. They actually have a good sized nugget in their hand, or you know, like a you know a sack full of nuggets, or you know that sort of thing. That's that's really interesting. You know, I couldn't help but wonder whether there might have also been a little bit of the, you know, that old California firewater involved, which is, you know, you find your your mother load, you know, you, you drink yourself to oblivion celebrating uh, either on the spot or back at home. And then because of that, you can't really remember exactly where you were, you know, weren't, weren't a whole lot of rules on that back in the day. No, and, and again, it's pretty easy to get lost, you know, especially if you're not experienced. And a lot of the early prospectors and miners were greenhorns, so, you know, they, they weren't familiar with mining. In fact, in the United States, the only mining, gold mining really that had taken place was in, was in Georgia on the Cherokee Indian lands in North Carolina and that area. So it was all new to them. They had to learn the, the trade and, and they had to work hard, et cetera, in order to try to be a successful miner. And, and most of them, again, you know, weren't trained in geology and geology in the 1850s was in its infancy. So they didn't have a lot of geologic maps or schools to learn the trade. Related to memory is just time, time itself, and not necessarily having a bad memory that would lead you to forget where your uh, site was, but the landform itself shifts. And as you say, erosion can play a major uh, role. Just in a year or two, you can have a completely different landform or topology than you would have you know, when you first went out there. Um, how frequently in your research did you come across just these kinds of scenarios where somebody actually kind of did the work of making the best notes that they could or trying to remember, but just the, the terrain had shifted and then they, they couldn't relocate it and it wasn't their fault. Right. I, I think it's pretty common. And, and, and plus, they had so much mining that took place and they would change riverbeds. They would divert riverbeds because when the river comes out of the mountains, it uh, forms a little delta and the channels change from time to time. And so you end up with deposits in, in the current stream, an old stream, a real old stream, and maybe an ancient stream. And just by moving all that water around, everything's different. Yeah, I mean, they'll erode tremendous amounts of, of soil. In fact, they caused a lot of flooding in the Central Valley. And I was involved with the California Debris Commission, which when I was with the Corps of Engineers, and that was to dam up some of this debris coming into the valley. I mean, it was just billions of tons of soils. It was a big thing. Everything changed. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. 
because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. So the antithesis to water that you describe, of course, is fire. And fire is a major factor in causing sites to to be lost or to be uh, transfigured, you know, in a way. Um, and it was interesting, as I was reading your account, I mean, you write that cabin fires in particular are not only deadly to their occupants, but they are potentially deadly to an entire hillside or to an entire swath of a county, aren't they? They are. And they have these huge fires. And then a lot of times the wind, it's really windy. It's, you have wind coming over the mountains and as they drop, the wind drops into the valley, it heats up and it increases in velocity. So once you have one of these foothill fires, it's really hard to put out and it'll burn hundreds of thousands of acres sometimes. So, and again, that all changes the landscape because as soon as they, the trees are burned down, you end up with rain and then hillsides collapse and you end up with a lot of uh, erosion and everything looks different. Wherever you planted your flag or put your marker on that, you know, particular sycamore or whatever it might have been, you know, it's like you're so much for that, you know, you, you'll never find it at that point. Um, now, on the darker side of things, our Crime Capsule listeners, of course, we love a good scurrilous tale of um, mischief and malady. And uh, before we get to the granddaddy of them, I, I can't help but notice that there's plenty of accounts of deceit, right? I mean, you just have people lying to one another or uh, lying to their families or, you know, one one individual will find a site, share it with you know, a supposedly trusted comrade or co co prospector, and then of course, that doesn't turn out very well. I mean, just deceit as a factor in causing mines to be lost and digs to be lost. It seems to be everywhere. It does. It's kind of like uh, the old movie Treasure of Sierra Madre with Humphrey Bogart. You know, you end up with a group going out, and pretty soon, they and they luck into something. And then they get greedy and suspicious. A lot of these characters out looking for riches, you know, they didn't want to go back home broke, though most of them did. They wanted to uh, acquire wealth one way or another, and even if it meant getting rid of some of their friends or cohorts in the process. That brings up the fact that uh, I'm going to make a small claim here, Craig. I'm going to I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb, and maybe some of our listeners can um, can correct me on this, but I don't think I'm wrong in saying so. I believe that your book, Lost California Treasure, may have the single greatest number of murders <laughs> of any book that we have featured on Crime Capsule to date in our two years. You know, I mean, it is incredible. Everybody is going around 
killing each other in the California Badlands. It is absolutely extraordinary. It, we're not talking every page. We're talking every other paragraph. Right. Somebody is getting a mining pick in the back or a belly full of lead or, you know, their throat slit in the middle of the night when they're out prospect. Like what it, it's, it, I've never, I, I started counting and I stopped after about 30. I just had to let it go. Yeah, and, and again, you end up with desperate people. The cost of everything was astronomical compared to normal costs because you had all these people come in from Mexico and Australia and Great Britain and the, U, the U.S. And at the time, you know, the, a lot of them didn't speak English. California at that time, you know, Spanish was the main language spoken. You had all the Anglos come in. So there were just a lot of desperate people. Plus, some people figured out it was easier to steal gold than mine gold. And, and, <laughs> Imagine. And they, Imagine and that. And they took the path of least resistance. And if you read accounts written by some of the 49ers or people out in the 1850s, there was a lot of murder and mayhem going on. And they didn't really have a a judicial system that worked. They didn't really have sheriffs. It was a lot of posses, and sometimes they hung the wrong person. Great. You know, and again, there's a lot of drinking going on, and there's not very much influence from churches and women because they're almost all men that went out there. And so you end up with a lot of bloodshed and people mm-hmm. having disagreements and turning to guns. And again, in some ways, we still have... S- some of these same problems today. It's just they're not fighting over gold. I think we have a romantic view of the 49ers and the gold rush of the sort of, hey, let's all go out there and we'll pick up stakes and, you know, like we'll go and we'll make our fortune and, you know, we'll have this new life and it'll be great. Um, Once I began really diving into the realities of, of the experience as your book outlines, you know, Especially the fact that you could not trust anybody when you were out there. You know, I just realized, no, I don't think that I want to go and be a 49er anymore. You know, you wouldn't sleep. You would be up all night just waiting for somebody to stab you in the back. You know, any earnings, any riches that you did find would be in immediate peril from the moment that you found them to the moment that you sold them. And then even after you sold them and made your, you know, got your cash in hand, well, you're still just a walking target after that point. I mean, it it's a really dicey endeavor from the get-go. It is. And, and again, a lot of people didn't get rich. Some made some money and they returned home. We had Cherokee Indians from Oklahoma mining there. And some of them came back and they actually had gold and they, they cashed in their winnings uh, from that time period. But it, it was a brutal existence in the gold fields. It really was. And most of them came out with groups of relatives and friends, and so they were watching each other's back. But if you were a, a single miner, you know, you were in peril if you found something. <laughs> yeah. All right, let me ask you about two more definitions of this variable X that causes sites to be lost here as far as kind of threads running through uh, your book. 
Uh, one of them, which is uh, sort of entertaining and kind of sad all at once, but also, you know, if you think about literacy levels in in those days, it's very understandable. You know, something that can very frequently cause a site to be lost is bad maps. You know, folks just are not great at map making in those days, and it's not much better than like a piece of canvas with some wavy lines and an X somewhere, is it? It's kind of like, come on, guys, surely you could do better than this. Well, maybe they couldn't. Who knows? Well, and, and it depends depends on what kind of material. I mean, some of them were educated and could write and do things like that. But again, a lot of them were just people down on their luck and they thought California's the place to go because they have a lot of gold and I'm going to go get some. Yeah, making maps. And again, they today we don't think about maps too much because we have all this GPS and surveys and everything else. But back then, there were very few surveys done in the Spanish period, not a lot of surveyors later on. And these people came out there, they didn't know, you know, Bear Creek from Dry Creek from, and there's like 17 Dry Creeks, I think, in California. (laughs) And there's, there's a number of Bear Creeks. So and a lot of these creeks didn't really have names in English. I mean, they might have had a Spanish name or an Indian name, but which creek do you, do you mean? And they all kind of looked the same at some point in time uh, in the foothills. So having maps is, is kind of difficult, especially out in the field. You've reminded me of the first time that I ever went to Atlanta and had to find an address on Peachtree Boulevard. Uh, you know, well, you can you can guess <laughs> what that particular little expedition <laughs> looked like, and uh, it's a wonder that I'm not still not uh, you know driving around uh, the, the downtown area there to this day. So the last one that I want to ask you about, which is. In a way, it's just the most tragic of them all. You know, um, as as the poets say, time and the worm devour all. So memory happens. Okay, sure. Bad memories fade. Uh, fire, that could be accident or deliberate. You know, we see that sort of thing. Murder, it's just expected. Okay. Um, but the last one that causes a sight to be lost, I don't know, just my, my heartstrings got, got a little plucked there, is bad luck. It is. Just sheer, plain dumb, bad luck can lead somebody to, you know, uh, to either lose their holdings or, you know, just whatever it is. And you just think, man, you did everything right out there. You know, you read these prospectors and they did everything right. And then just like this one tiny little thing goes wrong that's not under their control. And then they lose it all. Yeah. I I mean, and, and people feel the same today, you know, it's like, well, Gee, I almost I almost made it. Did I did everything, and the economy changed, or something changed, and all of a sudden, you know, it's a disaster. And and again, I get back to that's part of human nature. Uh, you have all these risks that you don't have any control over, and then suddenly something happens, and everything goes down the drain. You know, and if you're a miner and you get sick. And you stumble in, you're going to die if you stay there. So somebody rescues you or you find your way to some little nearby settlement 10 or 15 miles away. You know, you may not be able to find your way back or you may die and tell your story to whoever's trying to take care of you. And then they go look for it. And there's a lot of cases of that. They tell a doctor or, you know, uh, a kindly person that's looking after them about their gold mine, but 
the directions aren't very good. <laughs> the maps are bad and the memory's worse and it's just kind of a lost cause. It is, it is. <laughs> you know. Well, that is a perfect segue into the uh, the first case that I want to ask you about. And we'll look at this case this week and when we come back next week, we'll look at a whole bunch more. But you have this great account early in your book of a guy named John Snowshoe Thompson who uh, was actually a uh, Norwegian gentleman. He was not born in this country. He had immigrated you know, to the States in the early 1800s. And it just struck me, I, I wanted to, to give Snowshoe Thompson his due because in your entire uh, encyclopedic account of lying, burning, murdering, and more murdering, you know, this is like one of the truly, the few truly good guys. I mean, he actually was a kind of a good Samaritan in the uh, in the mining community, or at least in that region of California. And I just wanted to put him out there to, you know, to let the exception prove the rule, I suppose, and say, you know, we did have one decent bloke, as they say. Uh, so tell us about uh, Snowshoe Thompson. He immigrated to the U.S. with his family. And at an early age, he was a, an adventurer type. So he went to California during the gold rush or slightly after the gold rush started. He didn't do very good at mining, but he did good in farming or ranching. In the winters there, they couldn't get over the mountains to have mail go back east to their families. And so his side business was he would he had snowshoes or skis. They called them snowshoes, but probably a combination of snowshoes and skis. And he would get money from people in the Central Valley or California on the other side of the Sierra Nevada. He would go over the mountains to Reno, the Reno area, and they'd, he'd hand over the mail to the stages, and then they would transport the mail back east. And then he would get mail there and go over the mountains and deliver it to various uh, people in California. Otherwise, it would have to go by ship around the Cape of what is it, the Cape of Good Hope, go around South America by steamship, and it would take forever. So it was a lot quicker. And, you know, I, I see him as kind of a benevolent everyman, except that he had extraordinary courage to go over the mountains. But again, he was, he was Norwegian by birth, and he helped people, and people appreciated it. He had a very good reputation. And there is one gentleman you write about named Jim Sisson, who actually was quite badly stranded. And Snowshoe comes along and finds him and quite literally saves his life, you know, through his heroism. Yeah, yeah and, and again, if you're a loner, miner, prospector, and you get in trouble like he did, you're going to die unless somebody comes along and, and helps you. And, and again, there's a couple of variations in the story about Snowshoe Thompson, whether he uh, knew whether where the guy's gold was that he buried or whether the guy actually took some of the gold with him. But again, when you're traveling and, and you're about dead, Money's the last thing you worry about because you're just trying to survive. And yeah. you know, so there's a good chance, I think, that some of his gold is still up in the mountains, but it's not where you would normally look for gold because the gold is in that part of the Sierra uh, is absent. 
and, but he was just heading back east with his riches and and he ran into trouble and again snowshoe thompson once he got him into the reno area uh went over the mountains to get i think it was chloroform so they could do the operation and amputate the guy's legs i mean it it this is hard stuff i mean in in the west you you think how hard everything was back then because they didn't have antibiotics they didn't have good communications it, it's and they had burrows and horses and it's not like a car it, you got to feed it the burrows and horses are unruly <laughs> at times they'll run off you know there's a lot of moving parts to be successful is a prospector. Well, we will uh, dig in, forgive me, but uh, we will dig into some more of those incidences next week. Um, Thank you so much, Craig, for giving us this incredibly insightful overview of just what it was like to to do this work and how much is uh, unappreciated by folks, you know, today, the the realities, the pressures, the perils, the murders, you know, all these sorts of things. It's uh, it's fascinating to hear about it. So we'll come right back here next week and we will, uh, we're going to go underwater. We're going to go over the mountains. We're going to go into the high desert. We're going to go all over California as we chase up some of these sites. So we'll look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Craig Gaines, author of Lost California Treasure, a brand new title published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Craig and dive deeper into the lost riches of the California hills. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.